Hamas attacks, Israel retaliates, South Dakotans respond. From SDPB Radio, today is Wednesday, October 11th. This is In the Moment. We bring the conversation about fighting in Israel and Gaza home with voices from across the state. We'll begin in Vermilion at the University of South Dakota. Professor Tim Shorn grounds us in the context of the war and what it means as a massive humanitarian crisis. Then to Rapid City, Hanny Shafi has been to Gaza this year. We'll talk about what it means for civilians when food and fuel supplies are severed and a ground offensive begins. Then to Brookings, SDSU political scientists Dave Wiltsey and Lisa Hager offer analysis on the war and national politics. And finally to Sioux Falls, Rabbi Mendel Alperowitz brings a Holocaust survivor to the state to teach a new generation about the cost of hate. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Last week, a surprise attack by Hamas, a Palestinian militant group, killed more than a 1,000 Israelis. After the attack, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced his country is at war. President Joe Biden loudly condemned Hamas's attack and reaffirmed his support for Israel in a speech just yesterday. Well, later in the hour, we'll get perspectives from South Dakotans on the conflict, and our Dakota political junkies will cover how fighting in Israel impacts policy here at home. But first, Dr. Tim Shore joins me with an overview and analysis of the situation in Israel and historic Palestine. Dr. Shorn is an associate professor of political science and the coordinator of the International Studies Program at USD, and he's with us from SDPB studios on the campus at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion. Dr. Shorn, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you for the opportunity to join you. There has been um, fighting and attacks before, obviously, but what is unprecedented about what we're seeing in the past four days? Well, the fact that there has been an attack should not have surprised anyone. And in, in fact, it, it, according to the Egyptians, they were giving Israelis warnings about a potential attack uh, for a few days now. But it's the, the sheer size of the attack that is rather remarkable. Uh, never before has Hamas uh, marshaled this many forces and carried out a multi-pronged attack like this without apparently Israeli intelligence uncovering it before. And so also the the sheer cost in human lives of Israeli civilians has been unprecedented as well. So this particular attack, while, you know, in theory, should not have been a surprise. Uh, the size of it has been uh, shocking. There are um, rules of engagement for uh, war, for humani- international humanitarian law. Hamas militants uh, obeyed none of them. President Biden said this is a terrorist attack. These are terrorists. Do you agree with that assessment? This is just pure evil, pure terrorism. The, uh, the attack by Hamas first. Um, and, and that's a good question. Um, obviously, they have violated the laws of armed conflict uh, because they have failed to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. The fact that they have uh, seemingly massacred uh, civilians, uh, those attending the music festival, those at home, those on the streets, are clearly uh, a violation of the laws of armed conflict. Uh, increasingly, I avoid the the word terrorism uh, because it has been uh, it has become so politically loaded. But right. within the context of the laws of armed conflict, uh, Hamas has has tossed those norms out the window. 
I want to play a clip from uh, President Joe Biden's speech yesterday when he was uh, addressing the American people about the role and the stand of the United States. Take a listen. So in this moment, we must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. So based on that, what happens next, Tim Shorn? Well, I would imagine that uh, President Biden will ensure that if Israel needs uh, some types of weapon systems or ammunition, uh, that they will they will get that. Um, I think going unspoken, and although I believe that President M Biden mentioned it somewhat later in the speech, is that this is not uh, carte blanche for the Israelis to do whatever they want. Um, that we now see Israel violating the laws of armed conflict with the targeting of civilian infrastructure, uh, targeting um, protected uh, spaces, and killing civilians without distinguishing between combatants and non-combatants as well. And so, uh, sadly, this, uh, this killing is probably only getting started, beginning with Hamas's attack and now with Israel's air campaign and the expected ground campaign. We can expect thousands of thousands more civilians being killed through this conflict, and I think that's what President Biden is concerned about as well. And as the Palestinian uh, casualties increase daily, uh, we'll have to wait and see what the response is from Arab countries and mm. uh, other countries around the world, because I th I I don't see Netanyahu pulling back at all. I think he has a plan in mind to essentially, um, well, probably level the Gaza Strip and to eradicate Hamas. The question becomes how much damage is going to be done to the civilian population in the meantime. So I'm looking at uh, NPR information here for people who don't know much about the Gaza Strip. It's only 25 miles long by six miles wide. It's bordered by walls and fences. It's already blockaded. It is incredibly densely populated. More than half of the populants or, or the, the residents there are under the age of 18. This is a potentially, probably, massive humanitarian crisis. Don't they have to give civilians an exit? Uh, that's that's an excellent question. Um, one of the spokespersons for the Israeli dis Defense Forces, either yesterday or the day before, uh, advised all Palestinians to leave, but the only way they could leave was through the, um, the checkpoint going into Egypt. Four hours later, they noted that that checkpoint had been closed. So there are no there there is no place for the Palestinian um, civilians to go. Uh, they are going to be in the, the line of fire. And to put those demographics and population or in, in perspective, as I tell my students, Gaza Strip is about one-third the size of Clay County, South Dakota, but it has a population of two and a half million people. So if you wanted a uh, similar population density in Clay County, South Dakota, you would have to have 7.5 to 8 million people living here with no place to go. They're not they don't have a seaport. They don't have an airport. Those have been destroyed. They aren't able to escape uh, into the Mediterranean. Uh, it is essentially a one large prison camp. And Hamas knows this, and they 
um, will do everything they can to exploit that situation for their political favor. And Israel knows this, but as does the international community, but no one seems to be concerned about how to resolve the Gaza situation in the long term, and leveling it is not going to do that. Um, obviously, the Israeli government is in a position that they have never wanted to be, and that is with over a thousand civilian casualties, which obviously requires a response. But now the response is going to result in significant Palestinian casualties. What can you tell your students about historic Palestine that would help put into perspective why some people would not want to flee? The Palestinian Arab population has been there for millennia, and for them, it is their home, just as the Jewish population in Israel and, and the diaspora view Israel, historic Palestine, as their biblical home. So what we have are two populations uh, asserting their rights to a rather small piece of territory, and there are significant segments within each of those populations who deny the legitimacy of the other. Consequently, uh, it has become a zero-sum game for a number of Israelis, for a number of Palestinians, and those who would be willing to uh, seek a, a moderate consensus or a, uh, you know, a compromise are caught in the crossfire from extremists and radicals on both sides. The uh, additional problem is Israel um, has much greater support from countries who have power and authority than Palestine does. Now, that's not a problem for Israel, but it is a problem for Palestine. And so we see the, the two entities approaching each other, the two countries approaching each other from unequal positions. And for political and humanitarian reasons that go back to the Holocaust, Israel has a certain political and moral high ground that the Palestinians lack in the eyes of European countries, the United States, and others. Consequently, Israel sees significantly less reason to compromise now than they would have perhaps in the past, and the Palestinians find themselves um, ignored to a great extent. What Hamas has done is set back the Palestinian cause by at least 20 years, if not longer. And it also raises questions about what Israel might do in the West Bank mm -hmm. over the near term as well. We're going to leave that here for now. Dr. Shorn, we'll have you back on in, in the future, in the days ahead. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. We just heard from Professor Tim Shorn for context on the fighting in Israel and in Gaza. Later in the hour, we welcome Rabbi Mendel Alperowitz to the program. His organization is bringing a speaker to Sioux Falls to talk about the lessons and legacy of the Holocaust. We'll hear about that. Right now, we welcome Hanny Shafi to our Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio in Rapid City. Shafi is a developer, a philanthropist, a community leader in the Black Hills, a member of the South Dakota Hall of Fame. We just talked to him recently, and he had spent time this spring back home in Gaza visiting family and friends. Hanny Shafi, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I want to acknowledge... Um, 
First, um, hopefully on behalf of many South Dakotans, if not all South Dakotans, the pain of this and having family in the Gaza Strip, having um, a family not knowing what's going to happen next must be incredibly stressful and distressing on you and for you to come in and talk to us, I think is uh, just profoundly generous. So thank you first. And I'm sorry that the circumstances are not more positive. Tell me what kind of information is getting out. What are you hearing from family and friends? It is getting tougher and tougher, and everybody's anxious and worried about, you know, an, uh, a ground uh, intervention by Israel into the Gaza Strip. Everybody's worried about their children and their lives and their belongings and uh and so far, it's been really stressful because bombs and land are landing and nobody knows if they're going to be hit or their neighbor is going to be hit. And uh, there is no place uh, that could provide shelter uh, for anybody. Hmm. It's too sad to see that happening and it's too really disheartening to see the loss of life in both sides, and there is no reason for the innocent people to uh, be suffering like this, regardless if they're Israelis or Palestinians. This is one of the questions I've been turning over in my mind this morning is, um, is it possible to be on the side of humanity during this conflict? Do you think that there is, I mean, there's more than one kind of peace. There's the absence of conflict, just ceasefire, but then there's also um, an active peace that promotes um, you know, restoration and justice and rebuilding and infrastructure and equity and all these things. How far away do any of those things feel right now to you? It feels that, you know, uh, there is more radicalizations and polarization recently in the world. And we're allowing as humans, we're allowing the uh, radicals and the uh, people who have no uh, sense of uh, humanity to really take control over the lives of so many who don't have uh, any reason to be involved in any conflict. And uh, it's too sad to see that. How has the running blockade of Gaza impacted life, impacted the family farm? You know, life in Gaza, you know, is unbelievable. You know, families are close. People are uh, able to uh, make do with very limited resources. And uh, despite of the siege, people are able to survive, but are they surviving and are the smiles on their faces, are they real or are they unreal? It is unbelievable to, be, to see people smiling when they don't have the resources to provide food for their families or safe drinking water or the sewer that is running in the street and their kids are playing in the open channel sewer in the street. And uh, 
that is not the way life should be in the 21st century. And uh, that is probably why we see the radicalization and the ability of some of the organizations to uh, harvest that lack of opportunity and radicalize people. What are you hopeful for? Is is there anything... You're a hopeful guy. You're an optimistic guy. You're a person who often talks about the potential for humans to come together, envision big things, make solutions. There's nothing in this situation that feels particularly hopeful to me, but is there anything from your experience that you can say, I think that this small part of it gives me hope that we can focus on this area and make some progress? I think, you know, there is hope. And uh, and I really do believe that there are a lot of good people among the human race. And those good people exist regardless of their uh, background or race or religion or what have you. Uh, you know, in this case, some of the strongest advocates of the Palestinian cause are people of the Jewish faith. And some of the people who are on the Palestinian side, majority of them don't believe in the violence and in the violent approach to resolving the issue. That's why, you know, there was a start of a peace treaty which did not go anywhere because of lack of, you know, uh, intervention by external powers to really implement the peace process and push it forward because sometimes you have to give people a nudge to really do the right thing because they're blinded by what is surrounding them instead of looking at the big picture and look at the future, the future that provides opportunities for the children of the Middle East, regardless if they're Israelis or Palestinians. And I think that opportunity exists. It's all economics. I don't believe it is religious, but it is an economic problem where we gotta eliminate the disparity and try to implement equal rights for all the people and try to accept the right of each one to exist because all of them are trying to provide a good life for their children and they really don't care who their ruler is if it is you know, uh, Benjamin or Arafat or whoever it is when it comes down to it. What do you want people of South Dakota to know about their role in um, helping? I'm sure many people want, you know, to make donations to the International Red Cross. But what kinds of conversations should we be having right now with our friends and neighbors that bring us together instead of further polarize us? I think prayers really go a long way. And uh, for those who are uh, not used to it, it really does help. And, uh, and I think the prayers should be inclusive of all the civilians, the innocent people who are 
uh, currently under siege, regardless if it is in the Israeli towns or in the Gaza Strip. Those people don't have anything to do with the conflict. And uh, as far as donations, I think the donations should go towards the people who are losing their homes or losing their businesses or uh, so they could provide for their families. It's not really just to help start the business. Currently, there is need for food. There is need for f medical supplies. And uh, those things could go a long ways. And uh, for uh, the aftermath, there will be a lot of need for uh, reconstruction. There will be a lot of need for doctors to go perform surgeries for the people who are hurt in the conflict because there is not enough doctors uh, to really handle the cases that are coming in. You know, currently on the Israeli side, there is over 2,500 people injured. On the Palestinian side, the numbers are reaching 6,000. And within uh, the next few days, those numbers will rise, especially on the Palestinian side because of the sheer power that the Israeli military has and the uh, ability to really uh, use uh, tanks and uh, planes and the mass destruction that can be inflicted. Uh, you know, regardless if it is towards the Israelis or the Palestinians, we really need to help them out. Hani Shafi is a philanthropist, a community leader, a developer in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Um, I will be in prayer and meditation for uh, everyone throughout the day and the days ahead. Come back anytime. And thank uh, you very thank much. You. Our, heart, thank our you. hearts are with everyone. Thanks. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, we are spending today talking with people across the state, gathering their perspectives on fighting in Israel and Gaza. You heard from a Rapid City community leader with family in historic Palestine just a moment ago. We welcome Rabbi Al Perowitz later in the hour for a preview of an event in Sioux Falls where a survivor of the Holocaust shares his story and warnings for us all. And now we head to Brookings. We'll welcome our Dakota political junkies to the microphones. Professors and political scientists Dave Wiltsey and Lisa Hager are with us from SDPB's Janine Basinger Studio at SDSU. Dr. Hager, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Wiltsey, thank you as well. Good to be here. I want to start with a clip from uh, President Biden's speech yesterday that kind of gets at one of the things I wanted to talk with you both today. Um, here he is talking about some of the actions that he has already taken. Again, this is from President Biden's speech yesterday. My administration has consulted closely with Congress throughout this crisis. And when Congress returns, we're going to ask them to take urgent action to fund the national security requirements of our critical partners. This is not about party or politics. This is about the security of our world security of the United States of America. Um, Dr. Wiltsey, let's start with you. Congress is in chaos. Um, the House doesn't have uh, leadership, at least at the time that I was prepping for the show. I didn't see any breaking news on that. Tell me how urgent the situation is to get some stability in how Congress does business. 
Well, luckily, uh, when it comes to these sorts of foreign policy things, Congress usually has a, you know, a side seat to the president. They have, you know, influence in the long term, but not so much the short term. So as far as the crisis goes and crisis mm -hmm. management, um, I don't I don't see this uh, leadership fight as too terribly important. But clearly, they need to sort this out quickly. Uh, last I heard, Steve Scalise did receive the nomination, and they're proceeding on to a, uh, a vote here rather shortly. But that go any number of ways, uh, given the last time around. But in terms of, you know, the short-term effects on the crisis, uh, on this crisis, most of what we're going to see from uh, MCs on this is, you know, politicking. And we've already seen a lot of them uh, start piling on the president, uh, blame for um, this crisis for any number of reasons, uh, making rather spurious connections between um, our long-term policy in Israel and the short-term failure of um, Israeli uh, intelligence on this. So what I expect from them in the short term is uh, just more of the same, just this kind of uh, spurious politicking and uh, issue-taking that really doesn't help anything in the end. Um, Dr. Hager, First, anything you want to add to that is helpful. And then also, I'm kind of curious what kind of politicking, what kind of deal making is happening right now? Yeah, so I would say the interesting thing to watch for moving forward is how this conflict that's taking place in Israel ends up overshadowing or competing with what's going on between Russia and Ukraine and the resulting types of conversations that are had once Congress is back in session and having to deal with passing a budget and specifically thinking about the National Defense Authorization Act. How does this impact presidential politics next year? Um, the war in Ukraine, uh, the fighting between Hamas militants and Israeli fighters, this could have, both could have very long tails. Do we see it impacting? Um, well, Ron DeSantis is already, you know, using it as a platform to, to gain attention. What do you think happens next? Either one of you can take that to start out with. Well, I would say, uh, you know, s typically in presidential elections and congressional elections, uh, foreign policy doesn't weigh in too much in terms of these, you know, short-term crises, particularly when the United States is not one of the primary combatants. Uh, so. You know, you will see um, uh, candidates that are, you know, staking out these positions and making these claims like DeSantis and some of the others have. Uh, but that's more for their uh, positioning within the, um, within the primary constituency. And they're all basically going after the same people and, you know, virtue signaling in the same direction here. So in an end, I think it's just it's going to be a wash. Uh, I, I don't see this having a dramatic impact on... Uh, either the primary process or the uh, general election in the end, unless for some really bizarre reason we get drawn into the conflict directly. Mm. Um, well, we already have, w you know, warships nearby. How, how likely is it that we get drawn into the, help me understand the difference between what we're doing to show support for Israel military, in a military, you know, point of view versus what we're doing to show support for Ukraine. Are there differences? I don't, I don't see too many differences other than some of this, um, you know, positioning of that uh, carrier group um, in the eastern Mediterranean right now. And I'm kind of stepping out of my uh, yeah, area yeah. of expertise here. 
Um, but, you know, typically when we've had uh, conflicts break out between Israel and Hamas or is Israel and Hezbollah, we've not seen a lot of direct American involvement um, in terms of our troops and our materiel uh, you know, being directly involved in any kind of conflict. Yeah. Um, it's more of, you know, just providing a, uh, uh, a sense that, uh, you know, a, a stabilization force and trying to deter others who might want to be uh, moving into some kind of perceived power vacuum. Um, oh, I want to talk a little bit about disinformation and what we're seeing happening in social media, particularly on Twitter. I mean, I haven't even opened Twitter today, Lisa, because I was afraid that I would see something that was just totally false and it would sort of seep into my <laughs> into my knowledge base. Mm -hmm. So I've had really good media hygiene today, which is what I would recommend everybody does. But what are we seeing that adds to the conversation about polarization by the setup on Twitter, which is now X, and uh, the new format there? What is it opening the door to? Yeah, so the biggest thing that I've seen when I'm on Twitter X, I can't even keep up with what it's actually called half the time. <laughs> but what I've been seeing are a lot of discussions regarding what information is true, what information isn't, what has actually been confirmed by Israel, what hasn't. And at least for me and my feed, I'm not seeing a lot of what they're actually talking about. It's more what's getting referenced. Right. And so I think that's the other thing is just kind of seeing what it is that you're actually seeing and then just trying to practice good habits where if you are reading something that someone is posting, run a Google search, go to your favorite legitimate news outlet and see what's actually been reported and what's actually been confirmed before really engaging with it too much and more importantly before sharing it or retweeting it and then having uh, your opinion be solely based on something that could be potentially false. Yeah. Um, final 30 seconds for both of you. Uh, what are you looking for in the days ahead, especially as what's happening in the Middle East reflects on either state politics or national politics? Uh, Dr. Wilsey? I think we're going to see pretty much the same thing uh, over the next few weeks that we've seen so far. Um, you know, people's partisanship is really driving their reactions to this. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, this really isn't uh, contributing positively to our media environment. I mean, like you say with yeah. uh, Twitter or X or whatever it's called, I mean, Elon Musk is, you know, amplifying neo-Nazis right now. Uh, so that really does kind of tell you where we are um, in this conflict and how the media environment and the social media environment really is pushing this in a really bad, bad direction. Dr. Hager, final thoughts, last 30 seconds. I think we're going to continue seeing various folks who are running for the presidency weighing in on this, especially people like DeSantis, who doesn't have a lot to speak on when it comes to foreign policy experience. So engaging in this conversation about what's going on, is their way to kind of show voters that they would have a plan and this is how they would handle these types of issues when they don't necessarily have a ton of experience themselves? Mm. Um, political scientists and uh, professors of political science at SDSU, Dave Wiltsey and Lisa Hager, we thank you both so much today for this conversation. We'll talk to you next time. Definitely. Thanks.
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, we have been discussing the fighting in Israel and Palestine throughout the hour. You heard from a Rapid City professional who has family in Gaza earlier. We got an overview of what has happening from a USD International Studies professor. And our Dakota political junkies offered their analysis about how all this impacts U.S. presidential politics. Now we're going to shift our perspective um, and bring uh, Rabbi Mendel Alperowitz into our conversation. There's an upcoming uh, speaker, Joseph Alexander, who is coming to uh, Sioux Falls. He spent six years in 12 concentration camps during the Holocaust. He's the only member of his family to survive that genocide. His story is important. It is important to hear, to share, and remember. It is difficult. Um, the Chabad Jewish Center in South Dakota is hosting Joseph. He's going to be at the Convention Center in Sioux Falls on Wednesday, October 18th. Um, Rabbi Alperowitz, sorry, thank you so much for returning to our program today. Thank you. Thank you, Laurie, for having me here today. Before we talk about this upcoming event, um, I want to offer, as I have throughout this hour, a big breath of mourning and grief and peace and acknowledgement of the suffering that you are experiencing now and that your family, the images that your children have to watch, the memories, the intergenerational trauma, um, there aren't enough words. Thank Th you, and I'm so terribly sorry on behalf of all South Dakotans. Thank you. I appreciate that, Laurie, and the outpouring of support that we have felt, that the Jewish community in South Dakota has felt, that I have personally felt uh, from people in Sioux Falls and across the state has been unbelievable. It has been a tremendous hug um, and a very, very much appreciated support for what's going on now. It is completely devastating just seeing those pictures, seeing those images. When I see pictures of those children being killed and dragged away, when I see pictures of the 85-year-old woman, a Holocaust survivor herself, being abducted and kidnapped. I cannot help but think of my own children and my own elderly grandmothers because for the terrorists, a Jew is a Jew, and they're after me the same way they're after them. And seeing those pictures just reminds us of how evil still exists and how it's among us and how we have to resolve to be better citizens, better parents, better spouses, better people within our communities to help shape a brighter future for everybody. In spite of everything that we know about history, and much of it is forgotten, as we'll talk about in, in a moment, what we hear um, Joseph saying, Joseph Alexander, saying that 70% of middle school and high school students don't know about the Holocaust. So some of this agony is even not being held up in our uh, collective memory. I'm still surprised at the savagery of what I'm seeing on TV from Hamas militants, what they were willing to do to families, to peace-loving people, to civilians, as you said, to children. How do you talk to your children about that? How do you talk to uh, the Jewish people throughout South Dakota who look to you as their rabbi and say, what now, rabbi? What am I to do with this anger and pain in my heart? It's unthinkable and unimaginable. And I think until now, it may have been easy for people to say, well, this is something of the past. Such evil no longer exists. 
we read about these stories from the days of the Holocaust, perhaps, but today the world is better. And then when we turn on the television and we read the news online, we see that that still very much exists and that pain and suffering is still here. And those experiences of somebody like Joseph Alexander are unfortunately not things of the past alone. That sort of suffering still exists and still happening. I want to play a clip. It's a little bit of a longer clip. It is from Joseph Alexander talking about his time in the 12 camps in Poland. And um, let's just listen to his voice before he comes to South Dakota. I'm a Holocaust survivor from Poland, and I survived 12 camps. The boxcar who came here today, I rode in those cars four times. In every time, for three days, with no food, no water, no facilities. And when we arrived at the destination we were going, about 30, 40% of the people were dead already on the train. So that's why it's important for people to see the car, what it looks like, because they put 30 to 40 people in one little box car like that. When I was in Birkenau, I witnessed people going to the electric fence to get electrocuted. I saw people being beaten to death because they gave up. I never, never thought of giving up. I never lost hope, and I never stopped believing in God. And I said, I may have a bad day today, but I hope tomorrow will be a better day, but never give up. It's hard because it's something you can't forget. You always, I think about it every day. When you lose your family like this, I've lost my parents, two sisters and one brother in the Warsaw Ghetto. And I got out with a sister and a brother, younger brother. They went to another logic ghetto and I went to the camps. And I'm the only one survivor. Again, you can, um, you can hear the stories of that Holocaust survivor in Sioux Falls coming up next week. His name is Joseph Alexander. I have Rabbi Mendel L. Perowitz of the Chabad Jewish Center in South Dakota talking uh, with me here in the studio right now. Um, I'm going to ask you this one more time because I just need more. <laughs> what are we to do with the sadness in our hearts, with the violence that comes to our own hearts in spite of ourselves? What are we to do with all that? Do we bring that to God in your tradition? What, is it, what do we do when we feel like God isn't listening? We have to keep our hope strong. We have to keep our faith strong. We have to keep our belief strong. When we look back at history, if there's anything history has shown us, is that all those who have stood up against the Jewish people are no longer here. They're footnotes in the ash heap of history. The Jewish people will be strong, we will survive, we will thrive, and the people of Israel will be victorious. It's terribly difficult. The tragedy that's happening, the human suffering, unimaginable, unimaginable. But we have to be better people, better parents, better siblings, better people in our communities, try to do more good, more kindness, be the example that we wish other people would be, live the lives that we only wish other people would be able to live. 
Rabbi Alperowitz, thank you so much for being here with us today. We'll put a link up on our website to the information um, about that upcoming uh, conversation with uh, Joseph Alexander. Thank you for being here. We appreciate, once again, your time. Thank you. to keep our conversation going here but from maybe what might be to you a surprising angle because we're going to talk now about Bob Marshall specifically a children's book that has been published by the South Dakota Historical Society Press and when we welcomed uh, this author to the program we didn't know of course what was going to be happening in the world today but there is a lot of anti-semitism in Bob Marshall's life and so this is an opportunity to not only pause and welcome um, a more uh, the families into our day today and talk about this author's book, but to look at um, the face of of overcoming antisemitism in 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 history. So, Linda Elevitz Marshall, thank you so much for being here with us today. Her book is called Bob Marshall, Defender of the Wilderness. Linda, welcome. Thank you, Lori. I'm delighted to be here, and um, I have to say I wasn't expecting to hear this topic that is so much on my mind right now. Um, I wasn't going to mention it, but I have a granddaughter who's in Israel right now, and other family, too, and I'm distraught, to say the least. (laughs) So, um, that's... Oh, there's a beep. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. so, but to get back to the story of Bob Marshall, um, which was done so elegantly by the South Dakota Historical Society Press with uh, beautiful illustrations by Jeannie Bowman, um, it, the story actually started with um, anti-Semitism. Hmm. First, I want to uh, first I want to just um, <laughs> hold you in all of our hearts uh, for your granddaughter in Israel and and the worry that you must carry, and acknowledge the role of children's authors really in our society of trying to figure out how do we talk to our kids about different things in our in our nation in our history in our present that are really difficult. Um, lots of parents will go to a book and spend time talking about it. Before we get to really uh, Bob Marshall and anti-Semitism, I want to talk about the core of this book and his love for the great outdoors, his love for protecting wild spaces from roads and train tracks and highways and, and crowds of people. Tell me a little bit about who Bob Marshall was. Thank you. Um, so... In a way, it's it's all intertwined. Um, Bob Marshall was uh, born in 1901 into a German-Jewish family in New York City. His father was one of the architects of a um, section of the New York State Constitution that led to the phrase, 
Forever Wild, which is used to protect the New York State Adirondack Mountain Preserve and the Catskill Mountains. And his father thoroughly understood the importance of wilderness and, and appreciated it and passed that love on to his children. So Bob, uh, shortly after Bob was born, his family acquired a um, some land in the Adirondacks along with four, and they shared it with four other families. They bought that land because um, a number of years beforehand, a um, man named Joseph Seligman, who was Jewish and had been going to a hotel in Saratoga Springs for years and years and years, showed up at the hotel and was denied entry because the hoteliers decided they would no longer admit Jews. And following that, Seligman purchased property in the Adirondacks. And following Seligman, other Jews did as well. And that was how Bob Marshall's family wound up with buying land in the Adirondacks. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no air conditioning in those days, and New York City was stifling in the summertime. And, um, well, I mean, you can imagine it's hot now. (laughs) I was going to say, it's still pretty stifling in New York City during the (laughs) summer. Right. So before, wow, yeah, next level. Right. Right. So in those days, anybody who could get out to where it was greener did. Mm -hmm. And so Bob and his family wound up spending summers in the Adirondacks. And he loved roaming through the forest. And one day, oh, and he really wanted to be like, Lewis and Clark exploring the land. And one day he and his brother and um, an adult who his family had hired as a guide for him rode across the lake and climbed up a mountain. And at the top of the mountain, Bob said, this is amazing. I want to climb every single mountain over a certain height to do (laughs) Adirondack. He is quite an adventurer. (laughs) And and you know, he's going to escape some bears and, and, and scramble up some trees. I want, um, in the limited time that we have with you today, Linda, tell me what is in this story of wild spaces and nature and wilderness for us today, especially in a day, we really only have about a minute left, in a day when our hearts are heavy. Is it time to get outside and honor the work that someone like Bob Marshall did? It is time to get yes absolutely go outside and and it's time to feel that special feeling that happens inside when you're outside and take a breath and be glad that somebody knew to work on saving it and i'm going to go back to a jewish teaching mm-hmm. that says be careful because if you destroy what is out there there may be nobody later to be to repair it. And that was a teaching that was dear to Bob Marshall. And um, he spent his life trying to save the wilderness, trying to save the beauty all around us and to appreciate it. And I hope that we can all do that and find solace in the outdoors for everyone. 
This book is called Bob Marshall, Defender of the Wilderness. It really focuses not only on his life, but on how he created equitable spaces for people of all backgrounds to enjoy the outdoors. He believed in that equality strongly. The author and my guest, Linda Elevitz Marshall, the book is illustrated beautifully by Jean Bowman, and it is a South Dakota State Historical Society press book. So especially if you're near Camp Bob Marshall and Custer, uh, you're going to want to check this one out. Linda, thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Lori. I enjoyed it. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. If this show impacted your life, you can always find it as a podcast on our podcast feed in different areas. Tomorrow, we are going to have a frontline conversation about Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. We'll dive deeper into this idea of disinformation and what goes on X, especially in days like today. From all of us at SDPB Radio, thank you for listening. <laughs>